Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Tom Yanni is both the head of business development and a partner at the Influence Agency, a Toronto-based agency leading the charge in the influencer marketing space. But Tom's career path has had some interesting turns, with more pivots than linear progressions. Some highlights have included playing hockey in Australia and the Netherlands, script writing for TSN, and working as a consultant for an internet marketing company. What makes Tom's story unique is that unlike other entrepreneurs who have appeared on this podcast with businesses in their fourth, fifth, or sixth year of operation, is that at time of writing, the influence agency is just four months old. Tom, you're the partner and you're the head of business development at the influence agency. What is the influence agency and what does this entail? So we're an influencer marketing company and we specialize in pairing brands with influencers that are a very authentic fit. So making sure that we have people that are speaking to the right communities, that are producing content that will resonate within that communities. And we like to think of ourselves as sort of the Trojan horse of advertising, where it doesn't even feel like advertising at all. That when you line people up, right influencer, right brand, right content, right platform, um, that when you do it like that, it really is just great content being received by people that are receptive to it. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I'm from Oakville, Ontario. Were you born and raised there? I was born and raised in Oakville, yes. Tell us a little bit about your time growing up in Oakville. What was your family like? So my dad is from a family of 15. Wait, did you say 15? 15. 15 brothers and sisters. Ukrainian immigrants that came over uh, pre-World War I, or pre-World War II, I should say, actually. So yeah, 15. My my mom's from a family of six, both from Sudbury. They have a bit of an interesting story, but that's an aside. I could leave that for another day. Okay, but your dad from the family of 15, though, where is he in that totem pole? He is the fifth. The fifth. The fifth. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he looked after another 10 brothers and I don't and know sisters. how they did it. I honestly don't know. Like, and the house that they grew up in was tiny. My, da- my grandfather, was uh, he worked in Inco, which is just kind of uh, a mine up, uh, up north. And my grandma was just taking care of the kids. Small home. It's shocking that they, <laughs> that they all survived. They made it through. That they're all healthy and uh, doing well. But yeah, pretty incredible. Tell us a bit about life growing up in Oakville. Like, What were your interests? Sports. Sports was really my thing growing up. So um, my parents settled in Oakville because my mom was a child psychologist on the Dufferin Peel School Board, and that's just kind of where they uh, found a good place to grow up. Um, I met this. I've had the same group of friends for over 20 years. I met most of my best friends in grade two, three, four, five, and six. Almost all in grade school. A bunch in middle school, but uh, kind of the same group of eight, nine guys that uh, we've been tight since then. And so I've been really blessed. I have uh, awesome parents. I've got a sister who's great. I've had that good group of friends. Um, Oakville wasn't quite the same back then as it is today. I know nowadays it's really known as a real affluent community. I mean, my family's one generation removed from poverty. We, we did fine. I, I, I never was left wanting, but certainly uh, not the Oakville that it is today. Um, but it was a great place to grow up. And there was it's one of those places where there's maybe not so much to do all the time. Oakville is not Toronto. It's not a place where there's a, a whole lot going on, but it's probably the best things. Uh, Suburbia, I mean, exactly. shopping malls, schools, and subdivisions, that's what it's known for. Yeah. But your father was an entrepreneur, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a little bit. So he followed my mom. My mom, uh, funny enough, my dad is two years younger than my mom. He failed grade four for telling the teacher to F off. And that's my awesome. mom <laughs> skipped grade five because she's too smart for her own good. 
And uh, there was a four-year age gap. My dad met my mom while they were at the University of Windsor. He was an undergrad. She was a PhD, so he ended up following her. So it worked out for your dad anyway. It did. Yeah. No, it worked out well for him. He actually started as a janitor at uh, a local business in Oakville, just finding temp work while my mom got on with the school board. And he started working with Community Living Oakville. And he ended up creating a company through that called Best Pack, which was a packaging company. And he built that up into a $6 million a year business over the course of about 30 years. So he went from being a janitor to, to running the show there. And I was on his hip the whole time. And that was really kind of my first introduction to business and business development and relationship building and um, understanding how to be good to people. The one thing that my dad really taught me is that he was always good to people, whether it was somebody at the very top or at the very bottom, he treated everybody equally. And I really kind of I admired that. In so no pun intended, he influenced you. He I mean, did. He, very was, much he was so. the first entrepreneur yes. that you looked up to then, wasn't it? Absolutely. For sure. Tell me about your uncle Doug though. Yeah. So my uncle Doug moved to Europe in 1977 to uh, play hockey overseas. And he ended up meeting his wife there. He stayed over there. He's He's been the coach of the Dutch national team. He's coached in the uh, the German Bundesliga He's coached in the Austrian Elite League. That's where he is right now. He's coached in the Swiss A-League. He's been in Italy. He's coached all throughout Europe. And um, I've had a really keen appreciation for hockey at that level. I think people now are starting to understand, even with a guy like Austin Matthews playing in the A-League, coming to the NHL, scoring 40 goals. People know that these leagues are good, but I've kind of known this my whole life. Um, We used to go over there every summer. I'd get an opportunity to kind of train a little bit with some of the players that were doing off-season training And just seeing the life that he built for himself as somebody that went to Europe with nothing and what he's done was really, really inspiring and definitely kind of uh, showed me what was possible if you're really, really committed to your craft. Really quickly, is the style of hockey that much different there? Like you said, you did a bit of training over there. When you went there, did you kind of have to hit the reset button? It's different for sure because of the big ice surface. In North America, the style of game is to eliminate people. You, you win battles. In <laughs> Europe, it's about containing. It's about if you overcommit, then you're going to throw off your gaps and your angles, and people will you'll get beat that way. So that's why Europeans are often accused of being, at least in the past, not as physical with their play, but it's really because of the style of game that they grew up playing. You're trying to com- contain people rather than really take them out of the play. Oh, Canada. Yes. <laughs> Just take them into the boards. What was your first job? Oh, my first job was as a dishwasher at a restaurant called the Abbey Grill in Oakville, and they had a, a supporting uh, bar called the Ore House, and it was the best, worst first job of all time because it was thankless, it was intense. I was just getting yelled at by kitchen staff nonstop. Where are the plates? Where are the bowls? Where are the cutlery? And I just took it and uh, did my best to to get things out as quickly as I could. And then around 9 p.m. when the dinner rush would end, I would just be hit with a mound of dishes that would take me about four hours to clear. So I'd be sitting alone in the kitchen till 1 in the morning doing dishes and thinking to myself, I don't want to be doing this too much longer, and what can I do to put myself in a position where I'm not going to be this far down the totem pole? So it was very humbling, and I think that was good for a first job, but uh, it was it was a tough one. No, I concur with that because I... My first gig was in fast food. Yeah. I think I lasted three shifts. And I remember that's what it taught me was, I don't want to do this forever. Yeah. And I remember, because you probably had some full-time people that you worked alongside. And you looked at them and probably said, these guys come in and they do this for 40, 44 hours plus per week. This is their life. Yeah, and you could sort of see that there's a little bit of regret in their eye maybe that uh, that's not really how they drew it up when they were kids. Yeah, because as you get older, it's harder to get away from that. Exactly, yeah. 
But after high school, you moved on to Brock University. What did mm. you study there and why? So I took sport management and really... Oh, sport management alumnus right yes. here, two of us. Working. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's a great program. I think the thing that brought me to, to Brock essentially was just that I knew I, I had such a passion for sports my entire life growing up throughout my kind of youth and teenage years. Sports was my thing. Playing it, talking about it, watching it, it was just totally what I was into. And there was one sports admin program at Laurentian, but sport management at the time, I think it was one or possibly... I think it was the only program in Canada of its kind. There might have been one other, but nevertheless, the only one in Ontario that I knew of that was so specific to sport. And I just figured, I enjoy business, I enjoy sport. This seems like kind of a logical fit. So it was really more out of circumstance and passion for sport than anything that brought me there. But unlike a lot of people who jump right into the workforce, you did something different. You packed a suitcase, and where did you go after graduation? Yeah, I went to Australia. Even while I was in that program at Brock, I had no idea what I was going to do. Like, Nothing whatsoever. I knew some people that immediately decided to start working, and I just figured, I don't know why I would do that. I don't even know what I want to do. I don't want to jump into something and then get stuck and then look back and say, like, I didn't take enough time to evaluate my options here. So, And I was still really into to hockey. I was playing junior hockey at the time, and I'd been one year removed from my last year of junior, but I still had a passion to play. So I'd found out about a guy that had... Uh, gone over to Australia to play, and I thought, Australia, what's that all about? I talked to a guy that was uh, the president of the Melbourne Ice, and he said, yeah, we're about to, we're kind of partway through training camp right now. We got about uh, a month to go. If you get down here, we'll take a look. The way that I looked at it was, if I go there and make it awesome, I'll get to travel around for free, and I'll get some kind of free stuff along the way. This was was sort of a semi-pro league at the time. It's evolved a lot since then. And then if I don't make it, well what the hell, I'll just kind of travel anyways, which is something that I wanted to do. So I went there on a whim. I booked a ticket, and I showed up, and I made the team, and it ended up being kind of one of the better experiences of my life, for sure. So you were playing on the team then? Yeah. How did you find that opportunity? Like, you, you said that you had met the coach or the manager. How did you get in touch with them or even seek out that opportunity? The year, two years prior, part of the sport management program was there's an internship that you have to do. Yep. And I had done my internship with the Dusseldorf Metro Stars in Germany, which I was put in touch through my uncle, who at the time was coaching the Iserlohn Roosters, also in Germany. So the guy's name was Lance Nethery. He lives in Burlington. He introduced me to a lot of different people. And along the way, you just it's a very small community, the hockey community. So you kind of meet people that have played in different areas. I met a guy that was coaching in Australia, and then I met somebody that was playing there, and then I found out about the league. And at the time, it was evolving, kind of new. The level of play is kind of like you'd beat a bad OHL team. That's kind of like the level of play okay. over there. So I knew I had a pretty good chance to, to cut it and to, and to be good enough. Um, what was it like, though, being a hockey player in a country where hockey isn't even the number three or four sport? Like, you probably had to yeah. call it ice hockey, right? Because they're so used to field hockey yeah, being hockey sure. over there. Yeah, good for you for knowing that, too, because yep. it's 100%. That's true. Um, like, did you go out into the community and do a lot of events where you weren't just selling the team or selling I was so the games? But, like, you had to kind of educate them on hockey. Yeah, big time. So here's the funny part. Ask anybody at that time. This is 2007-8. Uh, Anybody I spoke to, what got you into ice hockey? Mighty Ducks. Everyone, Mighty Ducks, Mighty Ducks. That's Literally, a good point. the Mighty Ducks movie is the reason why hockey exists over there. Uh, at the time, so <laughs> Melbourne's in the state of Victoria, which is, I don't know the population, but millions. They only had one rink, and it was outside the city in a place called Oakley. So the hockey community was very small. Tough to get equipment there because of shipping, and the, nobody was really selling it. There was so you're only paying one a premium store. for it, importing. Big time, yeah. So I actually. 
uh, I started working at that one hockey store in Melbourne. I coached a team called the Melbourne Demons, which was a local youth team. I coached the Victorian State under-18 team. We actually won the, the national championship that year. And then I played for the local team, which was also the senior version of the Melbourne Demons. And then I played for the Melbourne Ice. So I was playing on two teams, coaching on two teams. I actually worked with a guy that was trying to build a new arena within the city. And we also imported about $25,000 worth of equipment to spread throughout the community at kind of a discounted rate. I found some good deals online and we imported a bunch of stuff. So I was involved in hockey at kind of all levels of, of youth and in their version of professional hockey. And then even just in terms of development of the sport itself. After Australia, where did you go? Did you continue your travels? Yeah. So while I was in Australia, um, I had met a guy named Mike Pellegrims while I was doing that internship with the Dusseldorf Metro Stars, who's from Belgium. And he is the all-time points leader in the, the German Ice Hockey League. And uh, he has connections to the Dutch League, so he put me in touch with a team uh, in Holland. And I came back home from Australia for about three weeks, packed my stuff, and went back to Holland and uh, ended up playing for a team called the Nijmegen Devils. The Nijmegen Devils. The Nijmegen Devils. How close were they to, say, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht? Everything is close in Holland. That's <laughs> the thing. I remember one time we were going on a road trip, uh, and... The, the Dutch guys were like, oh, this is a long one. We're going all the way to the north. I said, how far is that? They go, two hours. I'm like, two hours? Two hours gets you to Barrie in Ontario. Like, it was one thing that I realized there is how vast Canada is. Everything in Holland is tightly packed. You could probably fit all of the Netherlands in just southern Ontario yeah, alone. that's right, for sure. And after Holland, did you come back to Canada? Did you go anywhere else? So after Holland, I decided to try to play. Here was the game plan. I figured um, I want to go and play a year of pro in in a in an American hockey league, because if you play a year in North America of pro, then you can make a lot more money in Europe. My idea was to go either to the, at the time, the CHL or the SPHL and play one year and then come back to Europe and hopefully command a little bit more money. So when I got to, at this point, just kind of side note, I'd been dealing with a recurring shoulder injury. So I went to training camp with the Richmond Renegades. By the way, the Southern Professional Hockey League at the time, I'm not sure if it's still this way, but... Very, very tough league. They had a seven-fight rule. We had one game. Wait, did you say a seven-fight rule? Yeah. So you fight seven times and then you're expelled or kicked so out of the league? So it was for a team. If, if there was more than seven fights in a game, there was oh, a fine. They actually wait, had to make a rule for this. Yeah, in one game. Oh, yeah. God. I thought you meant like one person for the entire season couldn't be in more than seven fights. No, no. One game with the team. So I remember our coach coming in after the second period, one game. It was our third game in three nights in three different states. We had played in Richmond, Virginia. Then we had played in Washington. And then we had gone down to Knoxville, Tennessee. And I think the team was called the Fire Ants. I could be wrong about that. No, that was Fayetteville. Anyways. Minor League Hockey yeah. has such wonderful <laughs> names. So after the second period, there had already been seven fights in the game, and our coach comes in. He's like, boys, we're on the road. No more fight in this game. I don't want to pay any fines for you guys. I was like, what is this? Seven fights. I remember when I was driving on the bus back from that game, three games and three nights, and we had been doing two days prior to that for two weeks. My body was busted up. My right shoulder, I had had a recurring... It had dislocated on me like a series of different times, and it kept popping out, kept popping out. So like it was like Lego. You could just pop it on and off if you wanted to. Well, I didn't want to, but it was going out. But like on demand, like it was that. I wouldn't say it was quite that bad, but it would go out at inopportune times. So the last time, I was at a team breakfast the morning after, and I reached for a cup of orange juice, and my shoulder slipped out of socket. And I was like, you know what, that's, that's it. Especially in that league where it was my right arm, and my shoulder just, it was a mess. I couldn't defend myself when you inevitably get into fights too. So it kind of got to a point where 
I had spent two and a half years traveling, playing hockey, living the dream. I knew I was never going to get to the NHL level. And at some point I was going to have to kind of join the real world. And yeah. uh, that seemed like kind of a, a sign to get started on that phase of my life. But when you got back to Canada, you didn't get a job. You re-enrolled in school. So kind of. So I spent one year. I was running hockey lessons from Canland Ice Sports in Oakville, and I was running the sports store there. That was really my introduction to running a business because okay. I had to hire staff, schedule staff, pay staff, order in all the product, price the product. We did inventory. So I was literally running a mini business within uh, that enterprise. But I knew that that's not what I wanted to do at all. I was spending a lot of my time selling hockey equipment, sharpening skates. I didn't want to do that. I had always had a passion for journalism. If I hadn't gone to Brock for sport management, I was going to go to Carleton for journalism, and English was always my best topic growing up. So I figured, you know what, I, I really had a passion to, to write, to speak, to get out there, and uh, so I enrolled in journalism at Humber. It was a post-grad. First year was kind of a mix between print and broadcast, and then the second year you had to make a choice. And which way did you go? I kind of carved my own lane and I chose digital. That's how I really got into digital at that point. Cause I was seeing that TV was going into streaming and like what we're doing right now, radio was going into podcasts and everything was just going online. So I knew for sure print was going to be dead end. Didn't want anything to do with that. I knew broadcast was more sustainable, but it was all headed online anyways. So I literally had no skills. I was the guy growing up that couldn't like set a VCR kind of thing, like brutal. I was a running joke amongst my friends, how bad I was with technology. So when I'm telling them I want to get into digital, they're all laughing at me. Like, who do you think you are? You can't do, Cause, you know, in this program, you're not just writing scripts. You're editing, you're producing, you're doing everything from the top to bottom. Yeah, I actually started getting involved in, it was my first introduction to web development. We downloaded a WordPress theme and installed it and then started to produce content that was shared across there. And that was my introduction to deployment of content across social mediums. And that's when I started getting an interest even in paid search and SEO and different methods that will draw traffic into a website because we were producing all of this content, but nobody was paying attention. So we're thinking, what's the point? Why are we doing this? We got to get away. We got to figure out a way to actually build a community around this. And so that was kind of the first time I really started learning about how do you actually share content to relevant communities and create content that's actually interesting to them, that makes them actually latch on and come back for more? Precursor to becoming an influencer. A little bit, Put yeah. It, out there and build it your really community. wasn't an industry back then, but it was kind of happening. What sort of activities did you do at Humber? Were you uh, part of the school newspaper? I think they even have a TV station there, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote for the newspaper. I hosted the, a few different radio shows. I was involved as a reporter, and I... I was also an anchor a couple times for the new show, but they rotated that through a bunch of different people because a lot of people wanted to try that. It's kind of a prestigious position there. Well, that, and I mean, if everyone's in the same program for the same thing, yeah, I mean, yeah. they're all jonesing for one thing. Yeah. They've got to make it accessible, accessible exactly. to everyone. And they wanted you to test it. They wanted you to, be, to try being a producer, a director, an audio editor. They, they really wanted to kind of diversify your skill set. So. Or kind of bring you back down to earth in case, <laughs> in case you didn't have a face yeah. for television or a voice for radio. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. They didn't tell it that way, but I think you're probably right. Really was an opportunity to learn about a lot of different platforms. And that was a really practical skill development set. Rather than just kind of theory, it was really working with software, working with hardware, editing programs, getting FaceTime on camera. It was definitely very, very valuable in terms of developing skills that would help me later in life. But you won the TSN Best Scholarship out of Humber. Is that something that was done in conjunction with them? Like, how did you find yourself winning that? Because that led you into your first... I guess, real big media gig role at TSN. You know, I don't actually even, I don't even know. So you're very modest. <laughs> no, I, I legitimately don't know. Um, so 
Humber and TSN had some kind of relationship because in the second year of the program, you have to do an internship. And people intern at CTV, CBC, TSN, sports, wherever. Um, some people go the local route. But I, I knew I wanted to be in sports, so I was looking at TSN straight out of the gate. And at the time, Sportsnet now in 2017 has kind of eaten TSN's lunch a little bit because they got the NHL rights. And actually, when Jay and Dan originally left to go down south, that really was a blow. But back then, TSN was Canada's sports leader. So oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's where I wanted to go. And somebody introduced me to a guy named Kashif Arshad, who was um, basically the person who hired all the staff for Sports Center, for That's Hockey, for Off the Record. My first intro to TSN, I interviewed just like this, Michael Landsberg, as part of a school project. And he offered me an internship. But then Kashif said, um, if you want to work here long term, you're going to want to go through me. He basically just said, okay. yeah. he's like, if, you're, if you want in here, then you want to go through me. So that best scholarship, for all I know, I was the only person that applied. Who knows? I'm glad that I got in because it definitely opened up some doors. But what kind of duties did you have there at TSN? What did they give you to do? It was crazy. That is a major sink or swim industry. There was uh, an old line they used to say there that we give people enough rope to either pull themselves to shore or to hang themselves. I've heard that before. That's a great line. Yeah. So when you start there, you're shot listing. So you're literally watching sports games, and they have a software program that you would jump in on clips. So let's say I'm watching a Raptors game. I'm literally watching the game and I'm clipping every shot as it happens. So Lowry pulls over the three-point line, pulls up for three, nails shot. Lowry reacts after shot. Lowry isolation. Then Janis into Takumpo, brings the ball up court, cuts through the lane, dunk. Janis reacts. So you're literally shot listing all of this and that information would be taken by the story editor or the script writer who would then work with an editor to produce the highlights that we all watch on SportsCenter. So my role evolved from just simply shot listing to... Eventually, I was doing uh, news reports. I was doing stings and highlights and bumpers. So I covered kind of the NHL playoffs. I covered the, the Olympics. I done PGA Tour, MLB, basically all the major sports. I was there for about two and a half years. Yeah, it was mostly doing highlights that you'd watch on SportsCenter, but I also worked on That's Hockey Tonight, a little bit on Off the Record as well. And I would do news reports. So let's say Connor McDavid just signs his new eight-year deal. Then I would have to put together the report from... Jermaine Franklin or from who Were you writing scripts too for the actual on-air talent? Yeah. So a lot of times people think that the guys on air are just like riffing. No, they're, they're not. That they're just, they, no, they they're not that. at all. So basically what happens is the script that they're handed has timing on the left that says how long each clip is. And then there's a corresponding piece of uh, copy that they read that lines up perfectly. So when we cut highlights, we get the shot list. We write the script to basically map out what is happening over that shot. We hand it to an editor who produces it. And that place was so intense, by the way. There were times... Do you ever watch SportsCenter and the game ends and then like less than a minute later you're watching the highlights of the game that just finished? In the background, it is mayhem. Like there's times in there where I would be wrapping up with an editor who's buffering out the video like one minute before we're going live to air and then I got to run a cut sheet to the production room and the script to the on-air talent. Like Dutchie's on set. I got to get it to him right away. And literally running through the building. And that gave me an extreme appreciation for time. To me, five minutes feels like an eternity because there were times that like things would turn on a dime in a minute over there. And it was like mayhem. It was, it was like a fire was going on all the time. Well, because, I mean, when you watch SportsCenter, the set usually sort of overlooking like it's yeah, on that a balcony the overlooking the at the actual bullpen. Yeah. And it doesn't look too chaotic, but I imagine everyone is just running around trying to get the next story ready. So when you see it not looking chaotic, it's because 
uh, you're probably ro- watching something that was pre-taped. Okay. So when you're watching live shows, they're not always live. Usually 6 p.m. is live, and you'll see a couple people running because those are the guys that are, let's say there's a story in Vancouver, and the reporter out there doesn't have the same appreciation for the show starting in 10 minutes that you do because he's just feeding his material, but you've got to actually package it and get it out. So you're going to see a couple people running around 6, um, the later show too, but usually like if you're watching The Morning Loop, that's all pre-taped. They can do it over and over again, so it's a little bit misleading. I used I interned at the score years ago. I was in the media uh, media library, so I've got a bit of an appreciation for what you had to do there. I did it a little bit more. It was a little bit more. How do I say it? Reactively, like you guys were doing clips live. I had to do it after the game a day or so. Put it in right. there, but I totally know where you're coming from. And it's funny because you work with some of those people there that will look at you and be like, "Derek Jeter hit this home run three years ago. It was uh, it was it was a." Three runs driven in. I don't remember where they were playing, but I do know there was a green wall in the background. So the <laughs> next thing you know, you're going out there and Googling every MLB field that's got a green wall. And I'd immediately go Fenway Park, Boston. And, you know, there's people there that are encyclopedias of knowledge. And even when I was there, I was sharp to it. You start with Fenway, but yeah, but sometimes it's not that. And you have to go through and find through Wikipedia where the other ballparks were from there. So I've got a huge appreciation for what you guys were doing there. But you pivoted a bit. You left TSN and went to TechWise. Why did you leave TSN? So I guess the short answer would be the NHL lockout of 2012. The longer answer is I was still doing um, some work in digital on the side. So while I was at TSN, I was hosting the OJHL Tonight for TV Kojiko. So I was hosting and doing interviews for a Junior A show. And I was doing play-by-play for Humber Hawks volleyball and basketball. So that was on the, broad- on the broadcast side. I was also working with a few different businesses on their social media strategy. And I was really enjoying that. And again, I totally had kind of an appreciation and a focus for the online side of things from what I had been doing at Humber. So I wanted to maintain that. I wanted to continue to develop those skills. When the NHL lockout hit, obviously content when it comes to TSN is hockey. Like that's really what they stand for. So that was a major blow. Shifts were being cut back. A few people got released or like just let go for a period of time and the money wasn't coming in the same way without hockey being there. People repurpose their advertising dollars. If you had a 100%. hockey budget, you got to spend it elsewhere if there's no hockey. Yeah, that was a bit of a moment of truth. And I also knew, here's the thing, as much as I loved sports, loved journalism, loved the broadcast industry, and I got to watch sports all day and get paid to do it. That was fun. But at the same time, every time that you're watching sports... I was working. So like nights, weekends, it's tough to have a social life. It's tough to meet with friends, family, significant others, because holidays, you're working. When you're enjoying the NBA at Christmas, when they have those four games in a row, that's true. So I worked New Year's Eve. I worked Christmas Eve. I worked Canada Day. I was always working holidays, working weekends. So it was tough to actually have a life outside of work. So I did miss that too. I actually got to a point where I was looking for a little bit more balance. And so that combined with the fact of my really evolving passion for digital, I knew that I wanted to focus in that area. So I had a friend named Brittany Huggins who was working. I went to high school with her. I've known, I had known her since grade eight. And she was working at TechWise. Uh, she was overseeing the project management department. And she said, yeah, let me introduce you to the owner of the company. And that was kind of it. I met with them and I met with a couple other people. And uh, I ended up being there for a little over four years. So you landed at TechWise wasn't so much of a pivot for you because you had that experience, but it was completely different from what you were doing before. Yeah. So what did your role entail there? Yeah. So I started off as just a sales rep, kind of uh, a little bit at the bottom. It was just work on the phones, literally starting from scratch. So um, my dad was a salesman and a businessman and I was on his hip kind of my whole life. So that wasn't new to me, but it was definitely 
the first time I was working in sales, in digital specifically. Like I'd been doing jobs before in digital. I'd been accustomed to kind of digital marketing, but not just cold calling businesses. So that was really kind of the first six months. I was literally just cold calling businesses and trying to pitch them on websites, on SEO, on paid search, on social advertising, content development, on putting trop- proper excuse me, tracking in place to really understand how the site and their marketing efforts are working. So it was an uphill grind for the first year just to, to build a little bit of momentum. And then I really found my groove around sort of the nine-month mark. Um, I actually can remember a specific meeting. It was in August. So my first day was February 19, 2013. By mid-August of that year, I had a meeting with this really large sign company because we dealt with a lot of kind of mid-level business, some a little bit bigger, not too much corporate. But this was one of the bigger meetings I had ever had. And I just felt really confident going into it. I nailed it. They signed on the spot. From that point on, I I just had a bit of a, a renewed confidence, and it kind of took off from there. So I ended up opening up that business to more larger engagements. So I ended up closing some deals with some bigger clients that hadn't traditionally done business with TechWise before. So I ended up really coming up with some sales numbers that hadn't been done by the company before. And that kind of got me to a point where I was, again, four years later thinking, what's next? And when you're thinking about what's next, when you're in my position there, you really have four options. It's remain at TechWise and continue to just build what we're building. The second option is go to another agency. But if I did that, I'd really have to start from the bottom all over again because I built up quite a healthy client list at TechWise. The third option would be to go and work on the brand side. But if I was working for a brand as a marketing manager or director, I would have missed the sales component. I really would have. Um, and I also don't like, from in terms of compensation, I enjoy the idea of making whatever I get. I don't like being capped. I just like the idea of if, you, if you're good enough and if, if you can actually bring value to people and produce good work, then you'll get more of it and you'll make more money. And if you don't, then you're going to flame out. I like that. The eat what you kill mentality. Yeah, I really enjoy that. Um, and I learned that from my dad for sure. And then the fourth option was to go and start something for myself. So obviously that's the riskiest of the four options. But then it kind of got to a point where I was thinking, is it? It seems to me it might be riskier to not take that supposed risk because, look, we, who knows how long we're here for? We all get one shot at this life. Am I going to look back however long from now and say, I regret trying to go and build something for myself? No, I will always be proud of, of, uh, of giving it that shot. And then you look a little bit deeper. You start thinking, all right, aside from having a drive to, to go and try and work it for yourself, what's actually happening in the marketplace and, and what are the opportunities that are available? And then you look at the influencer industry. The United States is about two years ahead of us. If you look down there, it is blowing up. It's huge. And you look at that as a precursor of where we're headed for sure. Canada is way behind. Then you start looking at the opportunities available for influencer marketing in Toronto. And there's only a handful of companies here. It's not like we're flush with millions of influencer marketing companies. It's usually PR companies or communication companies that source influencers, or there's brands that are just going to influencers directly, but there's not necessarily a real strong structure and strategy behind it. And I don't think people were reporting on it as they should. It was like, we need somebody that we're looking to reach a million people. So this influencer has a million, there you go. But really, uh, maybe that million people, maybe 500,000 of them are living in Russia or China. Are you actually paying attention to the community of that influencer? That's are you actually looking at, is it male? Is it female? How old are they? What are their brand affinities? People weren't doing this stuff. And from an influencer's perspective, they were craving some structure too because they're not business or marketing people. Most of them just produce awesome content. And that's what they do. 
And so they don't want to negotiate deals. They don't want to create work back schedules and framework out different content deployment schedules with brand managers and directors. That's not what they do. They just produce content. So if we can come in and provide some structure and say, we're going to facilitate the deal. We're going to project manage and account manage this. We're going to report on all of the metrics. We're going to provide you with some really valuable insights that will guide future decisions and campaigns. It's good for the brand. It's good for the influencer. And there's not that many people in this market doing it. So we saw that as a real opportunity to get into the game. You're obviously very bullish about it, though, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of people are also pessimistic. When you're going out and pitching influencers, it's not the same as search engine optimization, which when yeah. you were doing it was, always, was already a very established uh, tool or method. Mm -hmm. Do you bump into a lot of people that are kind of pessimistic about it, or are they more or less uh, on board with what you're saying? A little bit of both. So there's definitely some people that think uh, influencer marketing is a fad or that they haven't had the best experience with it. But the truth is this. Here's just the fundamental truth that's indisputable. Influencer marketing is as old as time. It's just going under a different name. It's celebrity endorsement. The real question is, what that's are celebrities true. nowadays? Right? This is literally 300 years ago. This is how people used to sell tonic at local markets. You'd get somebody from the community that was well-known and respected to promote it on your behalf because people trust people, not brands. So why does Nike use LeBron James to sell shoes? Or you know, any company, they use people at that level to, to sell their products. They're using celebrities. Celebrity, the definition has changed. Celebrity used to be people on television or people on radio or people that are actors or actresses or musicians. And so we used to rely on sort of the traditional gatekeepers of media to provide us with our stars. And nowadays we're selecting our own stars because we go to these social platforms and we decide who we're interested in. So the definition of celebrity has changed. And now celebrity endorsements have transitioned to influencer marketing. But if you think influencer marketing is not going to work. You're really betting on people not being interested in people. You're betting on the oldest form of advertising not working. I think it just requires a little bit of shift in mindset that this is really celebrity endorsements. It's just that nowadays celebrities exist on social. When you guys did start the influence agency, and by the way, who are, who are the partners uh, with you alongside you at the influence agency? Yeah. So Nick Frieda, Noah Parker, and Steph Pulaski. Um, so and you I, worked with, did you work with all of them at TechWise? Two. Two, two of them at TechWise. Yeah. Noah and Steph, we had worked together at TechWise previously. Um, Noah, he's incredibly strong when it comes to analytics and account management and reporting on data. He actually did a job for the LCBO for quite some time um, when he left TechWise, overseeing their transition into uh, selling direct online and putting together frameworks to help with that. But how does the conversation start with all of you guys to decide to go out yeah, on your own? Because there's got to be, inter between the four of you, there's got to be a lot of internal selling amongst each other to understand that this is, this is a leap that we want to take together and we believe it's going to work. So for me, I had a bunch of friends from my previous media life that were coming to me and saying, I just got approached to wear a Hugo Boss suit on TV tonight and they want to pay me a hundred bucks and I got to take a picture on Instagram. Do you think I should do it? And I was getting... Really? Yeah, oh, I was getting man. questions from media people that I had known... In, uh, in my previous life that were just asking for my opinion because, again, they're not business people. They're not marketers. They're, they're talent. And they would just ask my opinion, and I, would, I was starting to have a bit of a light bulb moment going, this is becoming an industry. And then you started looking around at who are the companies out there that are facilitating this work and that are providing structure to this work, and there was a couple. So that was, for me, the moment where I thought, wow, this is a real opportunity. And then you look in Google Trends and you see search volume for influencer marketing as a hockey stick. It's just exploded over the last couple of years. So for me personally, it was a combination of people asking and then seeing a market opportunity. I talked to Noah about it at the time um, because he knows, Noah's funny, 
Uh, we always say no one knows the guy. He knows everybody. Like, yeah, all of his friends, like, own bars in King West, Queen West, restaurants. He just, he knows everybody. So I talked to him about it, and then he introduced me to Nick. And um, Nick, again, is just really, really well connected, and he knows a whole lot of people that are technically social influencers but had never even leveraged their communities, people that have really strong social followings for fashion, for beauty, for sport, for whatever, but they weren't even doing this work. Um, and at the time, Nick was looking at building a bit of a influencer marketplace. So that's why he had introduced me to him. And the three of us started talking. And then Steph came into the mix after that. So Steph and I were kind of working hand in hand during our time at TechWise. We handled a lot of accounts together. And she's just a superstar. She's super talented. And when I was initially, and we, I should say, were kind of just talking to her about the idea we didn't really think that necessarily she'd be ready to, to jump on board. It was more just to get kind of a second opinion from somebody that we respected. But she, as it turns out, was really, really into it and was really fascinated by it and wanted to get involved. So that's kind of how it happened. And that's how the team came together. Yeah. You guys are still in your infancy, though, because the company is only about three, four months old, you'd say? Uh, a li- it's actually a little bit more than that, but yeah, it's not, not too long. I mean, what have you learned in the last three or four months? Cause I've had other entrepreneurs on the media people podcast, but all of them have usually been in say second, third, fourth or fifth years of their company. So that's why I'm really interested in this story. I did. And I think we all did a lot of research before it's a big move, right? Like when we were all doing very well in our, in our previous careers prior to starting this business. So you don't just kind of make a decision to start out on your own on a whim Um, so I think we all took some time to really understand the landscape of the industry, where it was headed, looking to the States to see how viable is this industry. And you start looking at what's happening down there and you know that it's a precursor to what's happening here. The stat now is that kind of 75 to 80% of marketers are building influencer marketing as a part of their marketing mix. Everybody understands for the most part that we've spoken to the value of it. We're not getting too many questions about whether um, whether it's important or whether it works or whether it needs to be done. It's more about how it needs to work and how it needs to be done and how we select our influencers and how we track it and what's the ROI and how do you select the right influencers. So the conversations aren't so much about whether it works. It's more about how it works. But I can't really say that we've been blindsided by anything that we've kind of faced since we started this business. It's been, as any businesses out of the gate, it's a challenge to build momentum, but it's a challenge that we relish for sure. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice based on everything you've learned now, what would you say? Yeah, so we were talking earlier about our days back at Brock, um, that that we both were in that sport management program. And I distinctly remember they used to bring people in all the time to speak to us. And a lot of the people that spoke to us... Yeah, they got some good speakers. Yeah. I remember Rob Babcock was the GM of the Raptors at the time. He spoke to us. Uh, Dick Pound was the one that uh, I remember the most. Yeah, That would have been cool. Yeah, Dick Pound. I think it was in my second or my third year. He spoke about... uh, He was the head of the World Anti-Doping Association said some pretty crazy things about, uh, about how it's hard to police uh, figure skating. But anyways, we're getting sidetracked, but yeah. <laughs> but I remember so many of the people that would come to talk to us, they would always talk about networking. Meet as many people as you can. Build relationships as best you can. Hand out cards. At the time, I was, I was young and I wasn't really thinking that way. So if I could go back in time, I would have told myself, no, listen to those people and spend way more time focusing on networking. It's just that back then I didn't necessarily have the business mind or... Uh, the business development mind that I do today. But if I could go back in time, I think I've met a lot of interesting people in my life, many of which 
I didn't connect with in the way that I would have liked to if I if I could do it all over again. So that's now that I'm older, it's definitely a focus of mine to to meet as many people as I can and to to make good friends. Van Wilder said, "Life is all about relationships." There you go. Good movie. Very good movie. My signature final question, something I ask all my guests: If you weren't media, what do you think you'd be doing and why? Has to still be in sport. Um, it would either be like. If Australia wasn't so far away, I never would have come home. I would have stayed there for really? sure. You fell in love with the country. 100%. The weather's better. The food is great. There's no culture shock in terms of like language or anything. I, it's just that you're starting a new life when you go there. Nobody's flying 13 hours to meet you. But I would have been still playing hockey. I would have been coaching or involved in, in management in some form or in media. But it definitely would have been sport-related because that's just been kind of the common thread of my life. Tom, this has been fantastic. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show, but for more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching media people podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.